Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Nostalgia. Sounds like a disease like neuralgia or a condition like paraplegia. Actually, you know, that's not too far off. A Swiss guy named Johann Hoffer came up with the word in 1688 to describe a form of homesickness suffered by soldiers who had been away for too long. As recently as the U.S. Civil War, this pining for things gone and past was classified as an actual disease. In 1862, if the field doctor diagnosed you as being nostalgic, you had a really good chance of being discharged and sent home. Now, try getting a sick note today. Nostalgia is big business. It's all about getting people to pay big dollars to relive the good old days, a chance to feel young again and to recapture some lost glories, even just for a little while. Now, rock fans suffer from a lot of nostalgia. The first wave came in the very early 1970s when 50s music experienced a revival. This was an idealized remembrance of the 1960s took hold by the end of the 70s and never really went away. Retro 80s nights started appearing in clubs as early as 1993. And today we have all kinds of revivalist notions. 70s AM radio pop, the glory days of grunge, even disco has somehow been rehabilitated. The upshot of all this has been a continuous series of band reunions. Groups that had ceased to exist years or even decades ago are persuaded to trot it out one more time, and many find a lot of old fans that really never went away. A few, not many, but a few, find that while they've been gone, they've been turned into legends. And when they look out into the audience, they see several generations of fans. Meanwhile, the money can be staggering. This is the Reunion Parade, Part 3. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hi there, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the third and final episode in a periodic series where we catch up with all the bands who have reunited for whatever reason one more time. We're looking at why they broke up in the first place, what happened while they were apart, and the things that brought them back together. Now, we started with groups that were only apart for a few years, and we've been slowly working our way towards the alt-rock group that went on hiatus the longest. The last show left off with Public Image Limited, Johnny Lydon's post-Sex Pistols band. They didn't exist for almost 17 years before Johnny resurrected the name. Now we're really going to get silly. I know I'm not supposed to talk about bands that have broken up and reformed multiple times. That was one of the rules that we set out at the beginning. But we have to make an exception for Jane's addiction. In their early days, Jane's was sort of ignored. Their sound really didn't fit in with everything else that was happening in Los Angeles. Everyone wanted bands that sounded like Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue. 
But then singer Perry Farrell came up with the concept of the Lollapalooza Festival in the summer of 1990. What he saw was a field full of kids losing their minds to a pixie set at the 1990 Reading Festival in England. And he said to himself, why can't we have something like this back home? And so Lollapalooza was conjured into existence for the summer of 1991. And this is kind of lost to history. That first Lollapalooza tour was designed primarily as a farewell tour for Jane's Addiction. It was planned for them to headline the tour and then disappear at the end, which is more or less what happened. Once that tour wrapped up, the band had a couple of contractual shows to play in Australia and Hawaii. And the date I have for the very last show is September the 26th, 1991 at the Aloha Tower in Honolulu. That was it for the original lineup of Jane's Addiction. Yes, this hiatus was broken a bunch of times, 1997, 2001 to 2004, but none of these featured the original classic lineup. Those four guys didn't play together again until April the 23rd of 2008, when they played a short set after an awards ceremony. Their first proper gig in front of a paying audience was at a bar called La Cita in Los Angeles on October 23rd, 2008. After that, Trent Reznor got involved, some songs were recorded, and everybody went on tour in the summer of 09. So, how long was that break between Hawaii and the gig at La Cita? 17 years and 27 days. Jane's Addiction, the original lineup back together after 17 years and 27 days apart. That's a re-recorded version of Whores, a track that first showed up on their live indie record in 1987. They gave that away for free as a way to drum up interest in the Ninja Tour. That was a great name for a tour. N-I-N, Nine Inch Nails, and J-A, Jane's Addiction. And it was a good pairing, too, because that first Lollapalooza tour saved Trent Reznor from financial ruin in 1991. He was just kind of returning the favor. All right, here's a weird one, Soft Cell. And just to remind you who we're talking about, listen to this. The release date was July 7th, 1981. Soft Cell, the two-piece British technopop band that lasted from 1978 to 1984 before Mark Almond and David Ball amicably decided to part ways. There was no drama, there were no fights, it was just time. There was a farewell album and a tour, and that was it. Actually, it was probably Tainted Love that triggered all this. It was such a big hit that it overshadowed everything else they tried to do. So rather than fight it, they just gave up. But here's the weird thing. Thanks to Tainted Love, Soft Cell never really went away. The recording was sampled and covered and re-released again and again. The damn song went to number one on at least four separate occasions. Soft Cell made a decent amount of money from all this, but the real winner was a guy named Ed Cobb. Who's Ed Cobb? Well, he wrote the song in 15 minutes back in 1964. He's done okay. But back to Soft Cell. Both Mark Almond and Dave Ball stayed in close touch over the years as each worked on solo careers. Nothing, of course, though they ever did, ever matched Tainted Love. On February 1st, 2001, they just gave up and announced a reunion to mark the grand opening of a nightclub in London called Ocean. The interval between breakup and reunion was 17 years, 8 months, and 1 day. And since then, they've played shows and even issued a remix album that came in 2008. 
There was a scare on October 17, 2005, when Mark was a passenger on a motorcycle. There was a crash, some serious injuries, operations, rehab, and even counseling for the mental trauma. He's okay now, though. The last show ended off with the reunion of Public Image Limited, Johnny Lydon's successful post-Pistols band. They were apart for almost 17 years before being resurrected. But what about the Pistols? I said we get back to them, so we will. They exploded at the end of their one and only North American tour. This was July 14th, 1978, and this was after exactly one studio album. But then, on March 18th, 1996, there was a press conference at the 100 Club on Oxford Street in London. And it went like this. These are the people that wrote the songs. Thank you very much. And now we'd like to be paid for it. Because quite frankly, over the years, every f***er has lived off us. And we not seen penny one all respect. You wouldn't think we'd need a thing like that, would you? But quite frankly, I do. And I fucking demand it. Yeah. More questions? Because there ain't no one out there doing f*** all. You know, if you want to complain about people grabbing money, then look at all those trashy little pop stars you've got out there, left, right and centre. I don't see you bitching about any of those bumholes. Yeah. Is it because we're working class that somehow that means we have no access to cash, period? Should we just stay in our horrible little council estate? Bollocks. This went on for another half hour or so and didn't get much better. But the upshot of all this was the Pistols were back together and they were doing it for the money, in case anybody missed that point. In fact, the comeback tour was called the Filthy Lucre Tour. 78 dates over six months. The Sex Pistols recorded live in Finsbury Park, London in July of 1996 on their Filthy Lucre Tour. The time apart, 18 years, two months, and five days. Now, that's a long time to be apart, but there were bands who were uh, estranged for even longer. We'll break the two-decade mark next. The chance to reconnect with someone you haven't worked with for 20 years is pretty rare. I mean, think about all the things that can happen in 20 years. Yet I have five more bands who reunited after more than two decades apart. This is the first one. And it was a band that got a lot out of the never-ending retro 80s movement. Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Frankie Goes to Hollywood and their monstrous single first released on October the 23rd, 1983. The band broke up in 1987 following the release of their second album called Liverpool. They had basically worn out their welcome with the public and things weren't going well internally. Singer Holly Johnson got into a backstage fistfight with bass player Mark O'Toole at a show at Wembley in January. Then a Liverpool singer named Pete Wiley was secretly called. The call went something like this. Hey, you know what? We're sick of Holly. Would you like to be our new singer? But Pete said, no, nah, I, don't, I don't want anything to do with this. There was a final appearance on British TV on March the 21st of 1987. And that was it for the original Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Everything dissolved into a series of lawsuits that are too complicated and boring to get into here. There were solo projects and spin-offs, but nothing amounted to very much at all, really. And actually, no one had to do much because Relax kept getting re-released in different forms and mixes, and they kept making the charts. Very successful recycling. Same story as what we saw with Soft Cell and Tainted Love. So what about this reunion? Well, that's complicated. 
there was a band called The New Frankie Goes to Hollywood with a singer claiming to be Holly Johnson's brother, but that was all fake. For some time, four former members wanted to stage a Frankie revival. After that, though, the group kind of lay in pieces until 2003 when everyone was asked to appear on that VH1 show called Bands Reunited. Holly did not want any part of the TV show or any subsequent revival, but he did appear on the show just the same. Just an interview, though. No performance. In order to keep getting the other guys from getting any ideas about doing anything without him, Holly tried to register the name Frankie Goes to Hollywood as a trademark owned by him, thereby denying everything else to things like the name for gigs and T-shirts and CDs and DVDs, everything. But the other guys took him to court. And on June 7th, 2007, a judge ruled that Holly was being a goof and told him that he couldn't do that. He couldn't trademark the name. That opened the door to the Frankie Revival featuring a new singer named Ryan Malloy, and Holly had to pay about 3,200 pounds in court costs. So, there was a Frankie Goes to Hollywood reunion. The group split on March 21st, 1987, and was allowed to reconstitute, well, without their lead singer anyway, on June 7th, 2007. That's an interval of 20 years, 2 months, and 18 days. So, where are they now? Well, working under the name Forbidden Hollywood to avoid further legal issues. And the last I heard, the new singer quit, so who knows? Who even cares, really? All right, let's talk about the Velvet Underground. Most music geeks, me included, consider them to be the first true alternative rock band. The core of this band was Lou Reed, John Cale, Sterling Morrison, and Mo Tucker. That's the classic lineup. When anyone speaks of the Velvets, they speak of those four people. The group came together in April 1965 on a subway platform in New York. Lou was going somewhere when he bumped into Morrison on the D train around 7th Avenue. That meeting led to the formation of the band, and the first live Velvets gig was at a high school in New Jersey that November. The classic lineup was shattered after Lou left the group after a performance in New York on August the 23rd, 1970. Mo Tucker was expecting a child, and she was absent from a lot of gigs. Sterling Morrison had grown bored and withdrawn and was barely speaking to anyone. Meanwhile, they had a manager named Steve Sesnick, who apparently wanted more power in the operations of the band, and people close to the situation recall that he was really divisive, creating destructive internal gossip. And most of all, the Velvet Underground didn't have any money. After five and a half years, which included a long association with Andy Warhol, the most famous artist of the day, they really had nothing to show for it. So by the end of that show in August of 1970, two sets in Max's Kansas City in New York, Lou just walked out. That was it. There's a recording of those performances, and you can't tell that anything was going to happen. It was just another gig. But when it was over, it was over. Everyone scattered. Lou had his successful solo career. John Cale made his own records and produced albums for others. Sterling Morrison worked as a tugboat captain for a while and then got his Ph.D. in medieval literature and went to work at a university in Texas. And Mo Tucker? Well, she released a couple of solo records and then ended up working at Walmart. No, no, seriously, she was the greeter at the Walmart in Douglas, Georgia. It was the only way that she could support her five kids. But while all this was going on, a weird thing was happening. The legend and the rep of the Velvet Underground took on a life of its own. Several generations of musicians and music fans began to recognize the Velvet's important musical legacy. Literally hundreds of bands began to either name-check the group or cover their material. Critics began to write about them, crediting them with being these massive musical pioneers. It only got weirder in February of 1985 when some of their long-deleted material was reissued. Some videos were unearthed and put out. In the following April and July, there were more reissues. 
And because they proved to be so popular with the hipster crowd, people began to think that a reunion was inevitable. No, wasn't going to happen. No way. Uh Uh-uh. At least not until February 22nd, 1987. That's when their former mentor, patron, and producer, Andy Warhol, died after routine surgery on his gallbladder. The death of a friend and colleague will make anyone reevaluate things. Lou Reed and John Cale got together to record a very good Andy Warhol tribute album called Songs for Drella. Then the whole band was persuaded to play heroin at the opening of an Andy Warhol exhibit in Paris on June 15, 1990. It was a 10-minute special appearance, not what you'd call a proper reunion, but it got people talking even more. And there was something else. November 1989 will be remembered as the end of Soviet control over Eastern Europe. It was the fall of the Berlin Wall, the opening of borders. One of the people responsible for opening up Czechoslovakia was a rock fan named Vaclav Havel. In the 1970s, he was a big fan of a dissident rock group from Prague called Plastic People of the Universe, and their members kept being thrown in jail. The band's very existence was inspired by the Velvet Underground. The way the band was treated outraged Havel, who was driven into politics. Havel was instrumental in seeing through a non-violent transition of power from communism to democracy, something that he called the Velvet Revolution. And guess what inspired that name? Havel was elected president of the newly democratic Czech Republic on January 26, 1993. That, the Warhol thing, and all the mythology that had built up with the reissued records was enough to push the band back together. The Velvet Underground reunion began with a concert in Edinburgh, Scotland on June 1st, 1993. So here we go. Last show, August 23rd, 1970. First proper reunion concert, June 1st, 1993. That gives us a gap of 8,301 days or 22 years, 9 months and 10 days. One of the shows in that tour was turned into a live album. Baby, 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 The Velvet Underground, apart for 22 years, 9 months, and 10 days. And we're not done. The two longest intervals between breakup and reunion are still to come. Okay, we're now ready for the two bands with the greatest gap between their breakup and their resurrection. Now, I'll tell you right now that the New York Dolls, this very important band of the pre-punk era in New York, spent 26 years, 9 months, and 1 day apart. This group predated the Sex Pistols, the Clash. They were even around before the Ramones. In fact, without them, we might never have seen that spark that caused that incredibly important punk rock explosion in New York in the mid-1970s. The Dolls, though, really didn't benefit from this. Lots of press, lots of ink, lots of praise, but not a lot of money. Besides, they had so many drug issues that, uh, well, let's just say that it wasn't pretty. It's hard to say exactly when they broke up. The last shows were in 1976, but it wasn't really until sometime in October 1977 that they were done for good. So we'll just have to assign an arbitrary date of October 1st, 1977 for the breakup. Here's what happened after. Singer David Johansson went solo, recording some stuff under the name Buster Poindexter. He did some acting in Hollywood and hosted a show for VH1. Guitarist Sylvain Sylvain worked in David's band, formed his own group, and then got a job as a New York City cab driver. Then he moved to Los Angeles and took up music again. Bassist Arthur Kane had a rough time. He moved to Los Angeles where he drank himself into an alcoholic stupor. He was so drunk one time that he fell out of a window and nearly died. 
And there was the time a homeless man beat him senseless with a baseball bat, which left Arthur in a coma. But then, in 1989, Arthur became a Mormon, and he found a job working as a librarian in the church's genealogy center in Los Angeles. After hit and miss solo career, guitarist Johnny Thunders died of a drug overdose in New Orleans on April the 23rd of 1991. Some people maintain that he was murdered. There's a whole set of conspiracy theories around that. And finally, drummer Jerry Nolan died of a stroke following a bad case of bacterial meningitis on January 14th, 1992. He spent the last few weeks of his life on a respirator. So with all that, what was left to reunite? Well, the legend of the New York Dolls had grown to mythic proportions. One of their biggest all-time fans was Stephen Patrick Morrissey. Yes, the same guy who sang for the Smiths. In fact, when Morrissey was a kid, he used to write letters to the editors of various British music magazines praising the glories of the original New York Dolls. He was even the founder of their British fan club. In 2004, Morrissey was asked to curate a music festival in England called the Meltdown Festival. Knowing that this was his opportunity to make a personal dream come true, he made it his mission to reunite his favorite band of all time, and he did. The three surviving members of the group, David Johansson, Sylvain Sylvain, and Arthur Kane, regrouped. And much of what happened is chronicled in a great documentary called New York Doll. They rehearsed and played the gig on June 16, 2004. So, if we take October 1, 1977 as the breakup date, then we have a hiatus of 26 years, 8 months, and 16 days. The reviews were better than anyone could have hoped for, and there were rumblings of a tour. But, just 22 days after returning to L.A. from England, Arthur felt like he had the flu. He went to an emergency room of an L.A. hospital where he was diagnosed with leukemia. And within two hours, two hours, he was dead. Just like that. This left us with just two dolls, David Johansson and Sylvain Sylvain. And they decided to carry on and record an album. And you know something? It was a pretty good record. It was called One Day It Will Please Us to Remember Even This. And it featured guest appearances by Iggy Pop and Michael Stipe of R.E.M. Let me play you something from that record. This is called Running Around. Resurrected New York Dolls from 2006. There has since been a live album and another studio album called Cause I Said So. The Dolls were apart for almost 27 years, but we can go one further. This next band stayed broken up for more than 29 years. Like the Dolls and the Velvet Underground, Iggy Pop and the Stooges were absolutely bloody essential in setting the stage for all the punk, alternative, and new rock that was to come in the decades ahead. Life would be a whole lot different had it not been for the Stooges. But, like the dolls, they weren't the most careful people about how they lived. Drugs were a big part of their problem. Iggy actually ended up in a mental ward for a while. And then there was the time one of the guys tried to drive the band's 15-foot-high truck under a 13-foot-high bridge. And don't even get me started with the problems with some violent Detroit biker gangs. The Stooges finally exploded on February 9, 1974, in a haze of heroin, insanity, and debt. The big surprise was Iggy. He cleaned up, eventually. He started a solo career and has made millions upon millions of dollars licensing Lust for Life and used in cruise ship commercials. He also managed to acquire the legendary title of the Godfather of Punk. Meanwhile, guitarist Ron Ashton played in a couple of bands with his brother Scott, did a little acting in a couple of low-budget films. And original bassist Dave Alexander died in 1975 of pneumonia, resulting from complications surrounding an inflamed pancreas that probably resulted from way too much alcohol. 
As Iggy got bigger and more famous and more legendary, offers started to come in for a Stooges reunion. But things were going so well for Iggy that he felt that it really wasn't worth it. And he held that position until his record company came calling. Iggy's deal with Virgin Records was under review. The next record had to generate some buzz or he would be dropped. And that's when it was quietly suggested that maybe Iggy round up some guest musicians for his next album. And while you're at it, why don't you call the Ashton Boys, see if they want to work with you. Iggy took the hint and made the call. Ron and Scott appeared on four songs on a record that was eventually released under the title Skull Ring. That wasn't an actual Stooges reunion. These guys were just hired to play on Iggy's record, but it was close. And again, it got people thinking. So we've gone this far. Why not go all the way and just do it? As Iggy says, people love reunification. They like to see that you haven't forgotten your friends. And there's something very basic about that. And so it came to pass that Iggy Pop and the Stooges, the surviving members, performed at the Coachella Festival on April 27th, 2003. So let's do the math. February 9th, 1974 to April 27th, 2003. 10,670 days or 29 years, 2 months, and 19 days from breakup to reunion. Iggy Pop and the Stooges with Raw Power, that's from 1973. And they were apart for nearly 30 years before reforming. 29 years, 2 months, and 19 days. And for the moment, that's our record. They are the reunion champions. And I can't really see anyone breaking that record, can you? Now, there were several bands that we didn't include in our reunion roundup. Skinny Puppy, they were resurrected after a little over 8 years in 2004. Pavements, last show, November 20th, 1999. A reunion was announced on September 15th, 2009, so that's two months short of 10 years. Ned's Atomic Dustman, great band from the early 90s. They came back together in 2007 after being apart for almost 11 years. And let's not forget The Police. If we take their official breakup date as being November 1st, 1986, which may be only off by a few days, their time apart was 20 years, 3 months, and 11 days. And this reunion parade will continue as long as there are promoters willing to guarantee sufficient dollars and as long as there are fans who want to experience what it used to be like one more time. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 